listening to the Creating a Brand podcast, where we deliver weekly masterclass interviews on topics to help you make your first or next step in business the right one. I'm your host, Alex Sanfilippo. Do you know what you are meant to do with your life and with your work? Here's a deeper question for you. Is what you're currently doing what you know you are meant to do? If you've asked yourself these deep questions before, you are not alone. Today's guest is Jeff Goins. Jeff is someone who broke free from a comfortable life and stepped into what he was meant to do and ultimately led him to what he believes is his purpose. In this episode, Jeff shares with us the path for discovering your calling from his book, The Art of Work. This episode provides a unique perspective that I believe is going to serve you well today. So let's not wait any longer. Here is my conversation with Jeff Goins. Jeff, welcome to the Creating a Brand podcast. Hey, Alex. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you with us today. We're going to have a really great conversation. I wanted to mention that before I contacted you, I actually looked you up on YouTube and found one of your videos. It was extremely well done. You had a great office setting, very professional. You're dressed real nice. And then on your desk, I noticed that you had a Darth Vader mug. And at that moment, I knew we were going to be friends. <laughs> I love that. So we're not actually going to talk about our mutual love for Star Wars today. Instead, we're going to focus our conversation on your book, The Art of Work, which, by the way, was truly an inspiration. I believe it's going to add a lot of value to the audience today. So I'm excited to jump into this. Are you ready to go ahead and dive in? Yes, thank you. Let's do it. Creating a brand today, Jeff is actually going to walk us through the seven main points from his book, The Art of Work. But before we do that, Jeff, I'd actually like to hear your story about why you wrote this book. I think that'd be really helpful for the audience to hear today. Yeah, so... The story of how I wrote this book was um, I kept getting questions from people based on a thing that I had done, which was quit my job and become a full-time writer. And people were like, well, how did you do that? How, you know, like, what does that look like? And I was like, I know a thing or two about this. And so I sat down and wrote a book. I was like, here's how this works, you know? And, um, and it just didn't sit right with me. And so I thought, is this how this works or is this just how it worked for me? Like, did I just get lucky? And so what I did was I started reaching out to people. Um, and I, I reached out to my readers and friends and friends of friends of friends. And I said, hey, who do you know who's doing their life's work, right? They're, they've achieved their calling. They're living their purpose. They're doing work that they're proud of. And that feels like in alignment with why they're here as a human being. And um, I interviewed hundreds of people. I don't know, something like 700 people. I did a, a survey and asked people questions and got on the phone and I just interviewed all these people who had said that they were living their life's purpose. They were doing their life's work. They'd found their calling. And I started to take note of a lot of the things that these people had in common. And one of the things that they had in common was the path to their life's work surprised them. And so what was fun about writing this book as I like wrote the, the second draft of it, you know, once I'd written down all my, what I thought were my smart, good ideas, um, and I started listening to other people's stories, it resonated with my own story, but the lessons that I learned through hearing other people talk about how they found their life's work, um, it surprised me, you know, and uh, I realized, oh, this is true for me too, like this process surprised me. It didn't unfold exactly the way that I expected. And if there's one overarching theme to the book, it's that this is a path. It's not a straight shot. It's not a highway. It's not a, 
Um, it's not a perfect plan, right? It's a path. You know, it's like a trail out in the woods that winds and twists and turns. And maybe there's some fallen branches. Like, this is your life's journey is navigating this to discover who you are and why you're here. Man, that's a really powerful way to start off this episode. And what I take away from what you just shared is that when it comes to discovering what we were meant to do, we have to think about it as a journey, not a destination. So for the listeners today, what Jeff is going to walk us through, he calls the seven common elements found along the way in the journey of discovering what we're meant to do. Again, not the destination, but the journey. So with that said, Jeff, I'd actually like to go ahead and jump into the first of these points, which is awareness, listening to your life. What does it mean to hear your calling, listen to it, find it, um, respond to it? Uh, I don't think it's a one-time deal. I think it happens over the course of your life. It's a constant unfolding of understanding of who you are and what you're here to do. And um, responding to your calling is really, um, it starts with listening to your life. It starts with awareness that there is some sense that you are here to do something and you may not know what it is. You probably don't, but it starts with that sense that something's off. I'm frustrated. There's a problem that I don't know how to solve. I'm not meant for this. It's that feeling at the beginning of the matrix where Neo's like, not this. I don't know what I'm here to do, but it's not this. Um, And so we always start there. And I love this quote by one of my favorite authors, a guy named Parker Palmer, who said, before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, so that's the way of the the plan, right? Before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I need to listen to my life telling me who I am. And so awareness is about listening to your life, understanding who you are. And once you have a deeper understanding of who you are, what unfolds from there is this concept of calling, uh, what you're here to do. Activity follows identity. So you need to begin to ask the question to start the process, who am I really, right? What is, am I what I've been doing for the past 10, 15, 20 years? Or is that just a role that I've been filling in my understanding, my deeper understanding of of who I am or who I dreamed I'd be as a child? Something's, something's not in alignment. And I think answering a calling always starts with that angst, that frustration, that feeling of, misalignment that who I am and what I'm doing are not completely integrated. This first point is easily one of my favorite. The the act of self-reflection is a practice each of us has to be willing to implement into our lives on a consistent, ongoing basis if we truly want to become more aware of our lives and the direction that we're heading in. Uh, this first point really changed my life when I took it seriously. I'm passionate about this one here. So moving right along this path that you're sharing with us today, this second part is called accidental apprenticeships. Can you explain what this means to the audience today? So I'm really fascinated with this topic. Um, It seems that we live in an age where everybody wants to be a master, but nobody's willing to be an apprentice first. Mm, Right. Apprenticeship in the Middle Ages took 10 years. Seven of those years you spent working with a master, doing whatever they told you to do, grunt work. And then two to three of those years you began to practice your craft. You would become a journeyman. You would travel all around the country um, practicing. This often happened in, you know, Western Europe. And, um, uh, and you would practice your craft. And if you got good enough, you would eventually settle down. You'd submit a piece of work to the guild of other masters. This is called a masterwork or a masterpiece. That's where we get that word from. 
And um, if they said it was good, you know, they would go, oh, this is a masterpiece. This is this is this is worthy of the title master. They would accept you into the guild. They would make you a master and then you could take on apprentices. And that was how the process worked. And if you decide, if, you, if you're going on this journey of I want to be a writer or a filmmaker or an entrepreneur or whatever, um, these stages tend to reflect the journey. So stage one is awareness. Something's not right. Um, I go from going something's off to, oh, I have an idea of what this thing is. I'm moving into more deeply understanding what I'm here to do. And as you mentioned, Alex, it's, it's cyclical. It's like it's not like you figure this out once and then you're set for life. Um, right. That's not that's not how it seems to work for a lot of people. Um, and I'm doing the same thing right now. I'm reevaluating. Re I'm listening to my life in a different season where I'm like, is this it? You know, what is the deeper purpose that I'm being called into right now? So I'm practicing this this awareness right now. Uh, and then when you move into a new work, something new, right? Say that your calling is is something familiar, but not something that you've been doing consistently. You know, for every day for the past ten years. Um, mm -hmm. you're going to be called into a season of apprenticeship. And uh, I, following the theme of accidental apprenticeships, when you begin to wake up to why you're here, what often seems to happen is people show up in your life who have things to teach you. And I call this an accidental apprenticeship. It's an accident in the sense that it just sort of seems to happen, but it can become intentional when you go, oh, I have something to learn from you. You know, um, I wanted to be a writer and I realized I lived in a city, Nashville, surrounded by professional writers. So what did I start doing when I realized, oh, I want to be a writer? I started asking these people out to coffee and meeting them. One of the, one of those people was uh, Michael Hyatt, who is a, a mentor and hero of mine. He was a mentor from afar. He became a mentor of mine up close. And um, that became a very valuable relationship for me. We started meeting for coffee uh, every few weeks, just talking about things. And in that season, I started looking around for the people that I could learn from that were already in my life or in close proximity and just started the learning process. And I adopted the attitude of being a student. I had a lot to learn and a long way to go because, again, if we look back at that classic uh, model of apprenticeship, I mean, that's a 10-year process. So here I am 10 years later and I go, okay, I'm starting to get the hang of this. I really admire the fact that you look for people to learn from that were already in your life or in close proximity to you. You took on this student mindset, which is something that I believe that each of us has to maintain for our entire lives if we truly want to discover our purpose and also live a successful life. I'm really passionate at this point. I'm fascinated just like you are. I think that we both have decided that we are students for life, and I appreciate that. So uh, after awareness and apprenticeships comes the difficult part of the path when discovering your purpose. This is what you call painful practice. This is probably the most controversial part of the book, I have to say. Yeah, well, it's hard, right? I call it painful practice. Like, it's difficult. And what I mean by that is when you study the science of skill acquisition, um, you know, 10,000-hour rule, um, uh, the concept of the theory of deliberate practice, what people miss about that is it's not just about putting 10,000 hours in. It's 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. Um, which is, according to the study by Kay Anders Erickson, which was done at the University of Florida, um, that Malcolm Gladwell popularized in Outliers and called it the 10,000-hour rule. Um, but what he stipulates when he studies these musicians who became, become masters is they, they um, pursued deliberate practice. They did what was called deliberate practice. 
uh, which means they they push themselves to the point of discomfort. They, they did it even when it was hard, especially when it was hard. So deliberate practice is not just about going out and playing tennis for fun for 10,000 hours and thinking you're a master. It's about working with a teacher and pushing past the point of exhaustion sometimes uh, and doing it consistently for this many hours over this much time. And and he talks about having you know it, the right field of play. Like you've got to be you have to have the right equipment. You have to have the right opportunities. You've got to be doing it right. You've got to have some sort of teacher, someone to show you how to do it right. Uh, and you've got to be able to you know, put in the time and actually put in the effort. Uh, and you know, the best way that I can think about that is like learning how to play the guitar, where it was like, it's one thing to just kind of play some chords, right? And and do that for 10,000 hours and think I'm a master guitarist. It's another thing to push myself, to stretch my finger this way and and keep practicing this lick until I get it right, like doing it over and over and over again to try to get it right. And anytime you engage in a, a sport or uh, a skill or some sort of uh, you know musical or creative craft, um, I think people understand that there are these ways that we can plateau. There are these ways that we can compromise uh, our own journey. And um, you go, ah, that's too hard. I want to do that. Uh, especially if you think of like, I don't know, running or something, right? I, I, I am not an expert runner, but I've run for most of my life. And there's a point where you tend to hit a wall, especially in a long distance run. And the successful runners keep going. They actually push themselves past the point where they think they even can go. But if they push themselves too far, they can injure themselves. And so mastery is the ability to kind of understand uh, what that even looks like. And practice is the process by which we pursue mastery. It's how we get good. And if you want to be great at this, it's going to hurt. Meaning just because you love it and it's your life's work doesn't mean it's not going to suck some days. You're not going to like kind of hate it and be frustrated and go, I want to barf or I'm, I'm really frustrated with the gap between where I am and, and where I want to be. Um, and what I argue is that when you're doing it and you kind of hate it, but you still love it, you know what I'm saying? Like you hate the pain, but you still love the glory of it. Uh, you're probably in a good place. And if you, and if you start doing painful practice, and you're like, this sucks. I'm out. Good. That's good news. It means this is not your life's work. This is not your calling. This is just a hobby. And that's wonderful. That's great. I have lots of hobbies. I don't need to be the world's best guacamole chef, you know, <laughs> but I like making guacamole, but I'm not like painful practicing it. You know, I'm not like, Oh yeah, you gotta cut the avocado perfectly or whatever. Um, yeah. And so there's lots of things in life where you realize, oh, this is not the thing. And that's that's wonderful. You know, it's kind of sort of like dating. You're like, oh, you were great. We had a good time. And you're not the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. That's fine. Now I know. Painful practice is the process by which we get to that realization sooner. Instead of dabbling in a bunch of things and saying, oh, I'd love to do this for a living. You mm -hmm. might not, right? So push yourself in an activity that you think could be your life's work and see how much you enjoy it on those very exhausting 12, 13, 14, 18 hour days and see if you still love it. And if not, celebrate that and move on. Man, there is so much wisdom in this point. Painful practice leads to realization. The more painful the practice, the quicker one can discover if they're on the right path. This is easily the most difficult part of the journey, but it's beyond valuable for accelerating the process of discovering what you were meant to do. As a thank you for listening to the Creating a Brand podcast, I'd like to invite you to join our private community for free. 
If you text the word community to 1-904-299-8992, I'll respond with a free invitation link. Once you join, I'll connect you with other community members and resources to help accelerate your success. Join today by texting the word community to 1-904-299-8992. I'm looking forward to talking to you within the Creating a Brand community. And now let's get back to today's episode. Jeff, let's imagine that the Creating a Brand listeners today have endured the painful practice and now know that they're on the right path of doing what they were meant to do. What comes next on this journey is what you have referred to as building bridges instead of taking leaps. Can you explain this point? I think a lot of people go, oh, you know, this is it. I'm going to take a leap and and everything's going to be great. And most transitions from... I know what I need to do. I'm working hard at it to like, I'm going to do this for a living or I'm going to do this in some professional or vocational aspect. I'm going to turn pro, whatever that means to you. It could just mean you're spending a certain number of hours per week doing it. It could be that you're making money off of it, but it often means like, I want to do this. Like, I really want to do this. There is this transitional process of moving from one kind of work to another and I think more often than not, it's better to build a bridge than take a leap. You take a leap, you, you could fall flat on your face and everything could fail. You build a bridge, you're using the experiences, the knowledge, the skills from before, leveraging those into the next season of work. So in my case, I spent about two years um, transitioning from a full-time job as a marketing director for a nonprofit to becoming a full-time writer, where I was doing both of those things simultaneously. And I was beginning to transfer my time and energy from one kind of work to another. And I was very upfront with my uh, employer, like, hey, this other thing is taking off. I don't want to completely just jump into it, but it looks like I'm transitioning out. And I want to help you guys replace me uh, and transition somebody into this role because it was a fairly influential role. And I kind of enjoy the security of having a job as I'm ramping up, you know, becoming a full-time self-employed entrepreneur. And so building a bridge is simply giving you permission to go, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. In fact, most major transitions in life are not all or nothing. They're a little bit gradual. And that's okay, especially when you're talking about moving into your life's work, you could be a little bit patient with it. You referenced Michael Hyatt earlier, so I'll use him as an example here. He actually shared statistics in a blog post that he wrote years back, and it was determined that you are 30% more likely to succeed in your next venture if you follow this bridge metaphor versus taking a leap. Like much of what you're sharing with us today, it's not common practice, but the data does support that what you're saying is true and is a more effective way to transition. So creating a brand, make sure you take this point really seriously. There's a lot to learn from this. And now let's move into your fifth point in the book, which is what you call pivot points. Yeah, this is about failure. Failure, what, what do they say? Failure is not an option. Of course it's an option. It happens all the time. You know, Failure is not an option. It's an opportunity. Like It's going to happen. And when it happens, you've got to decide what you're going to do with it. And I think failure, moments when you don't get it right, when you miss the mark, when you fail... Uh, those are pivot points, meaning those are opportunities to change course, learn, course correct a little bit, and then go in a new direction, right? So the year that we're recording this 2020 is a year filled with disappointment and frustrations and people going, I thought, I didn't think this was going to happen. 
And we can think of those as the end points. Like this thing is over. This is the end of your journey. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Like you've got to play a new game. So we can think of those as end points or we can think of them as pivot points. And when you run into an obstacle, as an American, you know, I grew up thinking, you knock that down, you knock it over, push it over. Um, and I have found in my life that most obstacles you actually have to work with, right? Uh, as Ryan Holiday said, says, the obstacle is the way, right? The impediment to action, to paraphrase Marcus Aurelius, um, uh, you know, becomes the means to the thing that you want to do, right? The, the, the impediment, the thing that's keeping you from where you want to go becomes, becomes the actual way that you go. Uh, when you mm -hmm. work with it, when you work with that energy. So that's pivoting is you're not just knocking it down. You're not just jumping over it. You're, you're working with it and around it. And so when you run into an obstacle, the door keeps slamming. Um, the thing to do is not always kick the door down. Sometimes that's called for, um, but often it's like, well, is there another way to open the door? Is there a back door? Um, is this the right door to be knocking on? Um, and it doesn't preclude you from doing hard work. Uh, it just means that most obstacles, you, you need to work with them and find a way to make it happen and be flexible uh, with that. And I found that often when I'm like, that's the way that I want to go. And I run as hard as I can and I run into an obstacle. I'm like, oh, that's not the right way. And I turn a little bit and, and move around the obstacle and I go in a different direction. And where I end up arriving in life I go, oh, this is so much better than it would have been over there. I can already mm. tell. And I'm so grateful for that obstacle, for that failure that at the time I thought was death to my dream. I'm so grateful for that because it sent me in another direction that got me here today. This point's so important because I think so many of us, we, we have that mentality that if we fail, then, you know, that's it. We're, we're yeah. done. We're over. You try but... and you're done and it's over, right? Exactly. Uh, we have to learn to view failure as a friend that's just looking out for us. Totally. Uh, what I mean yeah. by this is if I share from, from my own life, there's certain things I've failed at and air quotes there, but today I'm thanking God that those same things didn't work out because when I pivoted and I actually was led to more success and fulfillment than that previous path would have ever led to. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And at the time you're like, this sucks. I, I, I just want to get to where I want to go. And then in right. re retrospect, you go, oh, thank you. that's so, that was such a blessing, you know, hallelujah. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I think, I think the main lesson here is when you experience failure or a setback, um, often the solution is not to knock it down or to run away. It's to work with it, pivot around it, find a way to get to where you want to go, even if the direction looks different than you thought it would. This is a really challenging point that you just shared because many people struggle to get through this and pass the idea of failure. But if we start viewing it more as an opportunity to pivot, possibly to something far better than what we're currently engaged in, it's really going to help us a lot. So I'm glad that we covered this point. And what you're going to share with us next is actually past some of this blood, sweat and tears, if you will. This is what you call the portfolio life. Can you explain what this means? Yeah. So um, I call this a new kind of mastery. Portfolio life is a concept um, that mastery of your life's work is actually realizing it's not one thing, it's a few things. So I'm not just a writer. I'm a writer. I'm a marketer. I'm a speaker. I'm a teacher. I have found a diverse, a diverse set of skills that allow me to make a living off of this work and allow me to, to maintain interest in it. Like it's, it's fun to do multiple things uh, and be good at them. And so I found that my calling is not one thing. It's a portfolio of things and how my work integrates with the rest of my life is all a part of it, right? So 
it's not just about being a writer. It's about being a writer and a dad and a good neighbor and a friend and, you know, whatever. Um, all of all of my life influences my work and my work obviously influences my life. And Stephen King learned this when he was recovering. He was in recovery from addiction, uh, alcohol and all kinds of drugs. And um, he installed, he had, he had installed this big, uh, writing desk in his house and he had locked his office door and kept his kids out and he had missed out on his family's life. Um, and then when he got sober, he got rid of that desk. He, uh, opened up his office, turned it into a TV room for his kids. And he would sit there and write books while his kids watched TV and played. And sometimes he'd stop and eat a piece of pizza with them and watch a movie. And he engaged with his life and he allowed while he was working and he allowed his work to interrupt his life. And, and I'm sure he was you know, still very disciplined and um, wasn't just constantly being distracted. Um, but he had done the other thing where, where like uh, his work, like everything in his life revolved around his work. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't a life at all. Um, and he said this thing in his memoir on writing. He said, I used to think that life was a support system for art. And now I realize that, that it's the other way around, that our art, our work supports the life that we want to live. And obviously, you know, the life undergirds the work as well. They, they work together. Uh, but the portfolio life is this idea that you're not just one thing, you're many things. And all of these things are, are working together. And so mastery is really about how you integrate this passion, this work that you want to do into all of your life. Because if you don't do that, it's going to be short-lived and you're never going to reach the level of excellence that you aspire to because um, you haven't found a way to integrate the work into the rest of your life. And you haven't understood all of the different skills that work together to make this your craft, your own unique thing. So I'm not trying to be the world's best writer. I'm trying to be the world's best Jeff Goins, um, which is really about combining multiple skills and interests into this thing called my portfolio. And yours is going to look a little bit different. And our job, like an investment portfolio, is to certainly pay attention to each of the individual pieces, but also look at the greater whole and go, this thing is working right now. This thing is successful. And there's going to be times where... Um, I, I may not be as attentive to my loved ones as I as I want to be because I'm working on this project. There may be times where um, you know work isn't as much of the priority. But the point is not perfect balance, and it's not about laser focus. It's about integration. Is the, you know is this thing called my life and all the different pieces of it? Are, are they all working together in harmony as best they can? I like how you just ended that. You talked about perfect harmony the best they can because I believe that some people might miss this portfolio idea and just do a million different things, right? And say, this is part of my portfolio. Here's, you know, I'm this, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this, I'm this, and never really succeed in any of those things. How, did you find for, with your journey, were they all kind of natural transitions that you just kind of fell into more of those things? Yeah, it's a good point. A good uh, question as well, Alex. So I like to say, don't become a jack of all trades, be a master of some. Mm -hmm. So don't be a master of one, because now you're putting all your eggs in a basket and that's not smart or um, necessarily fun for a lot of people. Most of us are interested in more than one thing. And so I think of it, to be practical, I would think of it as three things. Like pick your core thing and then pick two or three things that sort of complement the core thing. So for the, core, the core thing for me is still writing. You know, I, that's my core skill. Uh, and then the skills that complement that are marketing, which I have a background in, 
and communication, speaking, teaching, um, you know, kind of a bunch of different skills that allow me to take the skill of writing and leverage it into teaching online courses and speaking at events. Because uh, if I can write, I can write a speech, I can deliver it. So speaking is an important you know, spe- uh, communication, uh, typically spoken communication through teaching and speaking, um, is is a really good complement to the writing. Uh, and, and the marketing is a great way to kind of get attention around around the writing. And so these all of these skills kind of work together in this this little portfolio of mine. Uh, and then there's you know the family aspect and um, all the other different part, you know, personal life, you know, personal health, all the different parts of my life that all kind of integrate together. Um, but don't be a jack of all trades, be a master of some. Take a few things that can complement each other and work well together and that can allow you to stand out from other people that are doing or trying to do the work that you do. Yeah, it's great wisdom that you just shared there. The only thing that you didn't mention is that professional guacamole maker as well. I know yep, that fits in there very, somewhere in your portfolio. Yes, so, I like that you tied your name to it, by the way. You mentioned, you know, your portfolio is Jeff Goins and mine is Alex Sanfilippo. That takes a lot of pressure off of you. You're not saying I'm Jeff Goins, the world's best writer. Right. You're saying that this is the portfolio that I have and I have developed. Yeah, I'm the best me. That's a great way to say it right there. The best me. I really love that perspective. And it actually leads us straight into the final point, number seven for today, which is legacy. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think we often miss interpret or or misappropriate this this word this concept um you know and for me legacy is the is not the question how do i want to be remembered but rather what do i want to leave behind whether people remember me or not i mean eventually we all get forgotten you know um and so the question is is my work just about me or is it about other people and i want to be engaged in a work that's bigger than me Mm-hmm. That the work is so important that I can give my life to it, and that when my life is over, the work in some way continues, if in no other way it it um, continues to affect other people or you know the, how I showed up in the world left an impression on on other people. It's not about me. Legacy is not about ego. It's not about being remembered. You know, that's so when people talk about what do you want people to say at your funeral? That's I mean, I, I hear it. That's a that's a nice. Uh, um, way to talk about ego, and um, and it's fine, you know, if that's if that's what you want your life to be about. That's not what I want my life to be about. That's what I. That's not what I think legacy is. Legacy is about what we leave behind, and what we leave behind when we're pursuing a work that is bigger than us that requires other people to help carry it out. That it might require other lifetimes. It might be so big that we don't even finish it in our lifetime. Um, that's, that's a work worth pursuing. That's a life worth living, something that's bigger than even you. Man, I love this last point, legacy. That's so important. Uh, Jeff, this has been such a great conversation. So insightful. Before we end here, I just want to make sure that we get everything out of you we possibly can. Do you have any last piece of advice or wisdom for us today? Um, if you don't know what your life's work is. If you're hearing this going, that's great for people who know, but I don't know. I have no idea. I would say, good, join the crowd. Most people that I talked to, myself included, didn't know. They didn't just know. They had a sense, a suspicion, you know, a feeling like there must be more, but I don't know what it is. I just know this is not it. And they trusted that. 
And if you are willing to trust that, if you're willing to go, I think there's more intended for my life than I've experienced thus far, that's all you need to take the next step and simply beginning to listen to your life and go, um, what, what else could I do? Right? Like what else is there for me? Cause there's more, cause you're still alive. You're not done until you're dead. Um, and I met so many interesting and marvelous people when I was working on this, this book and it was, um, uh, an educational experience for me, but everybody that I met, it turned out differently from the way that they thought it was. And so I realized that what makes a life extraordinary aren't the chances we get, aren't the special opportunities that are given us, but rather what we do with them. And if you feel like you've been given a bad hand or you're a little bit confused about your life or what have you, understand that this is the raw material that you've been given to create an extraordinary life and it's possible. And if you're a little bit confused, that's totally normal. Um, clarity comes with action. So just take the next step. That's a profound way to end today's episode. Jeff, thank you so much for your time and for being a guest today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Alex. There you have it. The proven path to discovering what you are meant to do. If this episode added value to your life today, I want to encourage you to check out an additional 20 minutes of recording that Jeff and I did. He offered a deeper explanation on each of the seven points that he mentioned in this episode. I'll have a link to that conversation in the show notes. And now I have a question for you. Do you believe that you are currently doing what you are meant to do? To answer this very deep multiple choice poll, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 066 and select your answer there. In addition, feel free to leave a comment. I'd love to have a conversation with you on this topic. Jeff, thank you again for being a guest and helping us all to get on the path to discovering what we are meant to do. To learn more about Jeff Goins and to pick up a copy of his book, The Art of Work, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 066. Thank you as always for listening, and I'm looking forward to bringing you another Masterclass episode next week. And welcome to season six of the Creating a Brand podcast. Podcast.